We are in our last week of the study of James. We're actually in James chapter 1. I think I said James 5, but we're actually in James chapter 1. Um, it's our last study, but while we're going to focus in on and build the sermon, build our view out of one verse, we are going to be in the whole book. And I didn't put the verses on the screen for you because I think it's going to be fun for us to flip back and forth and listen to those pages ripple. Um, anyway, so just I would encourage you to get a Bible in front of you, open it to James chapter 1. It's on 10,011 in those black Bibles, and, uh, and we're going we're gonna to dig in. We're going to read it, I'll pray, and then we will get started. So for some context, I'm just going to read James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. The, the, the view or the, the thrust of this passage or the thrust of this message is going to come from verse 18. But let me just read four contexts, these Verses, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, listen to this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, this is your word that you have done your work with and through. I pray as we gather and study today, as we consider this book that we have studied for weeks and weeks. I pray, Father, that you'd use it again to do your work, to make us more like you to encourage us of the great hope that we have and to teach us how to live today. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. When we started the book of James, I told you that um, he essentially assumes the gospel. What, What I mean by that is not once does he teach his people about the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. It becomes clear, though, as we study the letter, it becomes clear that that he is writing this letter to Christians, that he's not writing to just any old group of people, but he assumes that his readers, that those who are reading and hearing from this letter, they know the gospel and they believe the gospel. In, In the first Verse, in fact, it says, James, he admits himself a a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he was writing to a group of Jews or to any other person and calling them to live in accordance with what he's about to teach them, he would not have called himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies himself that way. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he unites himself with these people that he's addressing. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's only one paragraph in all of these chapters, in all of these verses, there's only one paragraph that it seems that he's addressing people that don't have the hope of salvation, that are certainly facing condemnation as opposed to redemption. James assumes that his readers know the gospel and that his readers believe the gospel. 
And so he doesn't spend a lot of time establishing the doctrines of the gospel. Instead of focusing on those gospel doctrines, he spends his effort, he spends his words on moral imperatives of the gospel, the commands of the gospel, gospel commands. Of, of 108 verses, I went back and looked this up uh, just to make sure that the number was right. I'd somewhere gotten confused. Uh, but of the 108 verses in James, there are 49 imperatives. That's nearly 50% of the verses are a command for believers, for Christians to follow. Now, I know, I'm not familiar with the reality that gospel imperatives are not nearly, gospel commands are not nearly as fun to study as gospel doctrines. It's a whole lot more fun to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. It's a whole lot more encouraging to remember that his resurrection ensures our resurrection. It is so much more joy-filled to remember that his death was in our place and for our sins so that we could be accepted, that he was rejected so that we could be accepted. That is, that is beautiful, glorious truth. And when we focus on that, I think our, our spirits swell and our spirits soar. I know it's more fun. I know it's more encouraging. I know it's more joyous to study those doctrines because they encourage us more than the gospel imperatives that tend to convict us. They challenge us. They call us out. They don't let us sit in a place of, uh, of, of laziness or apathy. They challenge us in questioning, is the faith that we profess really true? Is it really having a work in our lives? They challenge us. But I think as we've studied James, one thing has become clear. For him, there's no division in these two realities. Every gospel doctrine results in a gospel imperative. Every gospel imperative is, result, is, is the result of a gospel doctrine. The reality is, it's all gospel. You see, his point's not primarily to make disciples. He, he's not teaching to, to call those people who have... He, to, that haven't professed faith, to profess faith. He is instead teaching those that have professed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to practice their faith in all of life. He's doing exactly what his Savior commanded him to do. Matthew 18, or 28, 18 through 20. Therefore, go, make disciples. Check. It's done. They're disciples. They're followers. Baptize them. Check. It's done. They've been baptized. We don't need to deal with that. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The commission that Christ gave his people was to go and make disciples that obey. You see, the reality is that James sees these two so intrinsically woven together that it is a tapestry of the gospel that when we don't look at these things, it is incomplete. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not as, it's not as easy sometimes to study these imperatives. But at every turn of the page, at every reading of the verse, and at every hearing of these commands, you have been brought gospel truth. The beauty is that he doesn't stop at the obedience. 
He points them in their obedience to remember, just as Christ reminded them in their great in his great commission, remember I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our hope is in Christ. And he shows that repeatedly over and over through the letter, even as he calls us to to look to the coming of the Lord. But just because James doesn't spend half of his letter rehearsing the doctrines of the gospel doesn't mean that his letter is devoid of those doctrines. In fact, James speaks clearly about salvation of sinners. (laughs) He speaks clearly about what's necessary for us to be saved, to be justified before the Father. The reality is is that right here in verse 18, we have the foundation of everything else he says. We have the undergirding doctrine that makes everything else he says worth hearing good news to hear and good news to apply. So, just think about this. If we look at verse 18, we have, we, we, we have the undergirding truth that substantiates. In, in some ways, it is the, it is the truth that, that makes everything else palatable, gives reason for us to obey. In fact, you just think of it in these terms. He, as we read verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his Creatures, the reality is this answers the why question that can, will inevitably come. Why should I count it all joy when I face trials of, very, of various kinds? Why in the world would I just run off and be angry? Why should I endure patiently until the coming of the Lord? Because you have been brought forth by the will of God through the word of truth. Why obey his commands about faith and wisdom and, and the way I speak? Because you are a product by the will of God and the word of truth. This is the answer to the why question. Why do these things? Why did these matter? Why do I not just get to live my life any old way I please today? Because you are not what you were. You are the product of God's work in your life through his word. Christian, I think this is the summary that we can take from this, the point, the big idea that we can take home as we study this. We are no longer what we were. We are not yet all we will be. But we are born again by the word of truth and that changes everything. Everything about us is new. Now I know, you look around the room, some of us look a little newer than others, right? Some of us don't look new at all. It's just the truth. It's, the reality is some of us have walked a few more miles than others. And our... It shows. But regardless of what we look on the outside, there is an unmistakable truth about what is true about us because what God has done, we have been born again. We have been made true. The word of truth, the gospel, fundamentally changes everything. Fundamentally changes everything about us. We are not what we used to be. We are different. And we're not all we will be. 
We're truly like newborn infants that have to learn to crawl so that they can learn to walk, so that they can learn to run. We're like children who must grow and mature in both our understanding of the word of truth and in our conformance, in our obedience to the truth. I think, as I mentioned earlier, that James is convinced that these two things are inextricably woven together. That because we have been made alive, we are not to live like the dead, but to live like the living. He expects us to act, react, interact, in whatever other way you can use the word act, in accordance with what has been made true of us from the inside out. We aren't always going to get it right. In fact, I would suggest if we did an inventory right now that some of us got it wrong just this very morning. It's so easy to get into an argument on the way to church. so easy to be frustrated by our kids on the way to church. seems like that's the day that they decide that they're going to be the most rebellious. It's so easy to get upset. In fact, it happened to me. I'll just be honest. It happened to me. On the way here, I'm on my motorcycle, and i on my way here, and somebody moved over, and, and certainly there's that righteous wait, do you not see me? But then there's that part of me that starts to lay on my horn and play it up really big. And when I get up beside them, wave with a big smile on my face as if. As if that woman did that on purpose. Hmm. See, we're not always going to get it right. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to stumble and fall. Just like a child, you're going to need the support of those who are now mature to help you grow to maturity. I've got to spend a lot of time with my grandson this, these last few weeks, and, and it's been a joy to watch him develop and grow. Uh, it's a lot easier to do that as a grandparent than a parent. Uh, if you're a grandparent, you know that. Thank you for that. Amen. Absolutely. It's true. But one of the, one of the coolest things is, is watching him begin to walk. When he stumbles and falls, not one of us screams and shouts, Gavin, I can't believe you fell! I can't believe you hadn't figured it out yet. What's wrong with you? Oh, we cheer and we clap. That start, first little step that stumbles. We clear and we, 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 we cheer and we clap when he, when he stands up and tries to do it again and he stumbles again. Oh, how exciting it is to watch our children grow. But isn't it glorious that God gave them mature parents to teach them to grow? in the fear and admonition of the Lord. See, we need people like James. We need people like James who will be honest enough, who will care enough, who will step in close enough and say the true things that are difficult to hear but that God uses to help us learn to crawl so that one day we'll get up and walk, so that one day we'll get to stand up and run. And one day, we'll get to sit down in his presence. You see, that's what James is writing for. He's not simply writing to make disciples. He's, seen, he's writing to mature disciples, and he's doing it with gospel imperatives. We are not who we were. We are not yet all we will be. We are growing and maturing. And God has used James' words to do that in my life. Based on feedback I have received from you, he is doing that in your life 
Oh, how applicable this has become over and over and over again. In fact, just this week, I was, I was sitting with someone and they said to me, I had no idea that God was going to use the message last week about speaking truth to one another in grace. I had no idea that I was going to have to learn what that was really like. And it happened. So I had to sit down with a, 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 a brother and sister in Christ and speak truth in grace. And they watched the transformation. What a glorious reality. See, we are growing and maturing but we are born again by the word of truth and that changes everything. It changes who we are. It changes what we do. It changes what we expect in the future. And that's really those three ideas are going to build out the rest of this as we look at how James builds that out in his letter as a result of what he says here in verse 18. Because of the gospel, because of the gospel, we have a new life. This truly is one of the central truths of the gospel, right? You are born again. You have new life. The, the language James chooses here the, the, that we read brought forth, it refers to the birth of an infant. In the context, he doesn't allow us to think of this in, in, in terms of the physical birth, but a supernatural divine birth. That's why I read the context. So you go back and look at it again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will. Whose will? The Father of lights. He's not allowing us to think that this is some physical birth. He is talking about a spiritual divine birth taking place in the life of the person. God has done this of his own will. He chose to do this. He chose to give birth to you. How many, how many of you actually chose to be born? None. Like this is something that happens to people, not something that they do themselves. God is doing this work of his will. He has given you birth. How did he do it? What was the means by which he did it? The word of truth. There are four other uses of this phrase in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Ephesians 1, 13, Colossians 1, 5, 2 Timothy 2, 15. And I've got these on my notes. You can get them after if you want to know what they are. But each of these four other uses of this phrase, is a, it, it points at the, the gospel as the means by which God saves sinners. The word of truth is the gospel. The reality is, is that God, by the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his, his uh, victorious resurrection, it has given you new life. That is good news. That's what gospel means, good news. It is good news that you have a new life. We, we, we can see this. We, we, we can see this begin to unfold, that this new life bears out a new identity. We are not who we were. We have new perspectives established in God's truth. We have new beliefs. We have new priorities. We have new affections and new desires. That's why the picture of the gospel comes with, with the call in conversion to, to, to both faith and repentance. It's a two-sided coin. Faith expresses the new beliefs and repentance leaves behind the beliefs, the beliefs in the lies. It, it, it recognizes lies for what they are and it says no more of those. I want the truth and it begins to believe what's true. 
The lies tell us that, oh, you can earn your way to God. And the truth is, no, you can't. The, the lie is that God will accept you just as you are. And, and the truth is, yes, he does, but he only does that in Christ. The lie is that he just accepts me this way. He doesn't expect anything new from me. And the, and the truth says, no, he accepted you as you are, but he didn't leave you where you are. He made you new. He calls you by a new name. He looks at you from a new perspective. I don't have one with me here, but... They're available on the table and I think in the file folders out there on our little tables that we speak of the vision of the church. This is the way we would say it around here often. Because of the gospel, we are who we are. Because of the gospel, we are no longer sinners but saints. You have been radically transformed. He no longer counts your sin against you. He calls you saint. He calls you holy. He looks at you as pure. We are no longer aliens, but citizens. We are no longer strangers, but sons and daughters of God. You see, brothers and sisters, he has made us radically new in this new life. And it's in this relationship to him that I think this is most clearly expressed. And James has ensured that we see that. He calls him the father of lights. Not distant creator who is unconcerned, but father of lights, creator, the one who rules over all things, who makes the light shine, in whom there is only purity and no shadow. And he says this father is concerned and he gives every perfect good gift. Everything he gives to us is perfect. Everything he gives to us is good. Even 49 commands in 108 verses. In James chapter 127, you can look down just a few verses. James, referring to our religious practice, identifies God as God the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. He writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. This isn't totally new in in the understanding of people in the world but it's the result of a covenant relationship. It's the result of God stepping in and taking on an identity that informs our identity. James 3.9, James warning, he, he, if you flip over just a, a, I don't even know if it's on the next page or not for you in your Bible, but just look a few verses later. James warning about the dangerous impact of our words. He, he writes, with it, speaking of the tongue, We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He's speaking to a people about their Lord and Father, who then he turns around and applies to all people who he simply refers to now as this one who's created in the image of God. There's a distinct way that he perceives both people inside the church and those outside the church. He's God to everybody, whether we admit it or not but he's father to those who he has brought forth that he is born again by the word of truth. It's in the same way that we identify based on our relationships. Oh, hi, my name is Seth. I'm Cameron and Tristan's dad. I'm Amy's husband. I'm, well, Liz, she's not here today. I'm her son. In the same way that we build our identity in this horizontal realm, we Our identity is formed in the vertical world between God and us. 
as he comes and identifies himself before us as our father. This this shift in relationship, though, it's not just in how we relate to one another and how he relates to us and how he identifies us. But the the shift that we see happening in James is, is, is that there's an imitation of the father. It's like the little boy who wants to be like his daddy when he grows up. I had a son like that. He, we, they would go with me when I was still in aviation maintenance. They'd go out with me out to the place I worked, Worldwide Aircraft, out at the airport. And one of my sons, boy, he broke more than he fixed, but he loved being there. I'll never forget it. One day he was sitting a hammer on a tire with a hammer, and hit it with a hammer, and it bounced back and hit him. <laughs> what do you do? He wanted to be like me, though, so he was making mistakes like I do. It was a beautiful imitation. A little girl who sees what her mom's like and wants nothing more than to be like her. See, James highlights this for us in a couple of different ways as he shows us that this new identity brings us to a place where we begin to imitate our father. James calls him in verse 17. He, he highlights God's unchanging nature. Flip over back over to verse Chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no, listen, there is no variation, no change due to shadow. This unchanging nature is then confronted or is then contrasted against those who are double-minded. In James 1, 8, he highlights the double-minded man who doesn't ask in faith. In James 4, 8, he calls out the double-minded to cleanse their hands, purify their hearts as they draw near to God and resist the devil. You see, the reality is, is that James isn't just commanding us to live a certain way. He is calling us to imitate the God who has saved us, the God who is our creator and now has chosen to be our savior and in saving us comes to us and says, call me father. See, James wants you to act like your daddy. He wants you to imitate him and desire to be just like him. Not only does he call us away from being double-minded, but he calls us away from being double-tongued. See, God gave us birth by the word of truth. Now that truth isn't just something we're called to believe, but it's also something we've been called to speak. This is why James is so concerned with the tongue. The first half of chapter 3 is focused on the damage that our words can bring. One of the lengthiest points of his teaching revolves around this. I mean, this is intensive, purposeful. I just read it to you a second ago. With it, the tongue, with our words, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. We have been born by the word of truth. And so our words must be founded in Truth, when James does begin to positively speak how we should speak, not tell us what shouldn't be happening, but what should be happening, he says in James 5.12, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Truth. What's happening in our hearts should be spoken from our mouths. James 5.13-18, through 18, our words should be in large part spent on prayer, praying in difficulty, praising God in Celebration, praying for each other. 
as we praise and pray in difficulty. In James 5, 19 through 20, speak truth to one another when you're wondering from the truth. The reality is, is that this is not just simply a command that we're supposed to obey, but it is an opportunity and ability given to us in this new life with this new identity to imitate our Father, to be just like Him. And I think the next thing we see this new life, this new identity is informed by is our new relationship to God's people. James, one of his favorite words and one of his favorite titles for Christians is brothers. Brothers, 17 times, something like that, he refers to us as brothers. We don't have to go through all of them, but let me just read some. If you're in chapter 1, it would be easy for you to kind of follow along. James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. James chapter 1, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James chapter 2, 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James obviously perceives these people not just as physical brothers, but as brothers in the faith. There are 14 others I could point you to. I would encourage you to read through it and highlight them and point them out. This new identity formed with our relationship to God. The Father forms new relationships horizontally between us and his children. We belong to a whole new family. And in case you're wondering, based on the context, we can see that this family is eternal. Blood might be thicker than water, but the word of truth is stronger than any blood that we could shed. See, brothers and sisters, we are united in Christ forever. And the reality is it's not just in the way he speaks to us and what he calls us. He is concerned repeatedly, repeatedly for the way we treat one another, for the ways that we act among one another and towards one another. In one, he calls out partiality, says that it has no place in Christianity. Not that there's not deeper relationships one place or another, not that I'm not closer to someone here than, than this person, but, but, but the reality of basing our view and our assessment and our value of a person off of their social, economic, gender, race, what, whatever it is that you're deciding makes people valuable. If it's not Christ and the gospel then it doesn't belong inside the church. There's no room for it inside the church. Partiality of this kind is division, and James says it has no place. James 4.1, he calls out the self-centered desires that build divisions among us and, and, and the self-centered pursuits and passions that, that cause us to live for ourselves and for the good of a brother, a sister in Christ. He calls them out, and I just encourage you to think for a moment. Think about the way that our sin, that our selfish pursuits set us against one another then enable us to live for one another. That hurt each other instead of be beneficial to each other. Because of the gospel, we are who we are individually in our relationship with God and we are who we are corporately in our relationship with one another. 
This is our new identity. But the gospel, gospel doesn't stop at giving us a new life. That is certainly a central truth of the gospel. That is what makes the gospel such good news that we are no longer what we were. And that there is something more to look forward to because we are not yet what we will be. But brothers and sisters, as the gospel gives us new life, it also gives us a new way to live. See, James is clearly concerned with how we act. He calls this out over and over as he deals with these, these imperative commands, as he, as he builds any lengthy teaching on, on commands and expectations, not just a legalistic, overbearing sense that he must get us to act a certain way, but, but, but commands that he's saying these are expectations of us, not because they earn your place in the gospel, but because they result as, a, as, as the real reason, they, they are the result of your place in the gospel. They are the result of you having this new life. See, the gospel is that by bringing forth, bringing you forth, by being born again by the word of truth, God has not only given you a new way to live, he has actually made you able to live in that way. And so, no, it's not fun. It's, it's not always easy to be confronted by gospel imperatives. But they are only put to us because they are good for us. They are as good for us as the teaching that Jesus died in our place and for our sins. See, James is he, he's being he's like the doctor who, who who receives the infant from the womb and pulls him out, smacks his butt so that he gasps and takes the first breath. Now I don't really know if that happens, but that's what I picture that's what you hear about happening. I don't really know if that occurs. But he but he's so concerned about the well-being of that newborn infant. He wants him to do the very thing that is natural for the newborn infant to do. Breathe. Just, just try not to breathe for a second. It's not going to last very long, is it? It's so natural. And he's wanting us to do the very thing that's natural to us because we're alive. He, he's acting like the parent who loves their kid enough to tell them not to put the bobby pin in the light socket. My mom wasn't quite fast enough for me. I found out what happens when you do that. I still don't like getting shocked to this day. It's one of, the, it's one of those little fears. You know, you jump in somebody and helping somebody out on the side of the road and you see that spark, man, it just makes me jump. Man. From the child's perspective, it, it might seem like, oh, He's just trying to keep me from something. He's trying to keep me from, from enjoying life to its fullest. He's, he just wants to, wants to keep the best stuff away from me. He's trying to ruin my fun. Who is James to do this? But the truth is, he's, he's given us this direction so that our lives or faith are expressed in the lives we live. Because that's what's good. That is what is truly Good. I know. I, I know this to be true because I'm still somewhat rebellious at times myself. Hearing 49 commands and 108 verses in just about 15 weeks can be very challenging. And some of the words he chose were intentionally very challenging. 
But the gospel is that it does more than just give you a new identity. It gives you a way to live that is really, truly good. And while it doesn't always feel like it, that is good news. Because of the gospel, our new life comes with new responsibilities. Throughout this letter, James has, has compared and contrasted two ways in which we can live. One is in step with the gospel, the word of truth, and one isn't. Flip over to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and you have a passage where he deals with faith. And he presses on us as he challenges us. Is your faith a dead faith or a saving faith? Dead faith can be professed, it can be spoken, but there will never be any proof that it's real. It will never result in action all day long. I tell you, I believe that that chair will hold me. I never once sit in it because I don't really believe it. Saving faith, placed in the right one, placed in the Savior, produces real fruit in the life of a person. It is revealed by action. It's proven By the way we live. So James presses on this. He pushes us in it. Does your faith produce action that demonstrates the word of truth is now your source of life? I don't even want to move on from that for a second. Because in this this place where we live, it is so easy to say I believe. And no one questioned that. No one challenged that. We follow a few simple little traditions. And Brothers and sisters, what does the activity of your life demonstrate that you're living sourced by? God's truth? God's gospel message? God's word of truth? Or a pursuit of your own selfish gain? Dead faith will not produce the results that demonstrate that you are trusting in Christ as your Savior. Only saving faith does that. So I plead with you. If you're believing in anything other than Christ, your absolute need, desperate need for a Savior, because you are a sinner. You do not deserve God's good. You do not cannot earn it. You cannot pay it back. You must become dependent upon death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you would trust in him, you will have life. And that life will be revealed in how you live. James wants this for his readers. I want this for our church. James 3, 13 through 18, you flip over to that passage and you see him comparing and contrasting two types of wisdom that we can apply to our life. Wisdom being the application of knowledge, the right use of knowledge. Are we going to apply the wisdom that the world has that's going to result in division and, 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 and struggle and problem and, and infighting? Or are we going to apply the wisdom that comes down from heaven? You see, the reality is even this is depicted, it's demonstrated, it's proven in how we act. He says that by his good conduct, you can read in James 3, 13, 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Step down just a little bit further to verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open. It begins to describe not just our attitudes, but the way we interact in the world around us. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Uh, We can live by heavenly wisdom or we can live by worldly wisdom and the fruit of that shown in how we live. James 4, 1 through 10, just the very next passage, draw near to God or live with the devil. Uh, It doesn't say it exactly like that, but it's, it's there. Do you not know that Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend... I'm sorry, this is verse uh, 4 of chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? He's jealous over his people. He longs for us to do the right thing. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. You see this whole picture, this whole presentation of drawing near to God and resisting the devil? These are counterproductive. They're counterintuitive. They they, they can't go together. They're two ends on, well, they're really on two different spectrums altogether. You're either going to draw near to God and resist the devil, or you're going to stand opposed to God and live with the devil. There's these two ways that we could live. It isn't just the activity that we, that we express in our life it's, and, and our responsibility toward God, but, but James repeatedly calls us out to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ a certain way, to love one another, if you will. Pray for one another. Speak truth to one another. Don't fight and quarrel because of your own selfishness. Don't show partiality to one another based on some social status. Instead, he reminds us we do well when we strive to fulfill the royal law And love our neighbor as ourselves. And then he turns and he says, but listen, specifically here in this body, there should be no partiality. There's an emphasis of what should happen in and among God's people. See, this new life, this this gospel life gives way to, to gospel living. We see that in our new responsibility. We see that in our new purpose and our new mission. Flip back over to verse 17, chapter 1. I'm sorry, verse 18 of chapter 1. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This first fruits, it's a reference. It's an Old Testament reference to to the Jewish uh, law that they uh, adhered to and they abided by, but he's using it as an illustration, as a picture, if you will. These these first fruits were especially God's. They, They were set apart. They were holy, distinct to him. They were not set apart for common use. They were set apart for him. Even after the use of them, they weren't allowed to go back and be eaten or be used in common means. They were to be the best. They were, they were, they weren't leftovers. They they weren't, they they weren't something that, oh, this doesn't really hurt us if we give it up. They were to be the first piece, the best of. And finally, they were a consistent reminder that God is faithful that he redeems, that he provides, that he protects, that he is present with his people. 
Now, church, then, this is who we are. Set apart, holy, distinct in the world, especially his. You see, the reality is the whole world belongs to him. Everyone, regardless of whether they profess faith in Christ or not, whether they believe in him or not, whether they're atheist or agnostic, doesn't matter. All of us belong to God, but the church especially is his, set apart unto him by him. He is the one who gave us birth. He is the one who brought us forth. He did the work of setting us apart. We are the best, not because we are inherently, intrinsically better than anyone else. Don't even let that idea creep in. But because we have been made new. You see, we are able to do something because of what he has done in us. We are able to do something that no one else in the world can do. Our lives won't simply glorify God because he is righteous and just and he is glorious we get to actually actually participate purposefully, intentionally in the worship and glorification of this God by living in obedience to his commands. There is something intrinsically different about us that he says, that's beautiful. I'm jealous for that. I long for their good. And I long for the worship that they would give to me. You see, it's not what we are intrinsically by ourselves. It's not what we are by our nature. It's what he's made us that sets us apart. And brothers and sisters, his church is a reminder to his people and to this world that God is God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that it's through the church that he is showing his manifold wisdoms to the whole creation. The church is an ever-present reminder in this world. If we would just live as God has called us to be, if we would just live in obedience to his commands, if we would just give ourselves to this holy life, to being the people he's called us to be, to giving ourselves to a life of worship and to being his first fruits, his, his ones that, that remind the world, if we would just do that and quit trying to be something we're not and quit trying to find peace in this world and just look for him for our peace, Brothers and sisters, naturally what would happen is the mission would be fulfilled. He would use us to bring glory to his name. He will use us in history. This is, this is made evident in the lives of the apostles. As he went to them and he met them on beaches and under trees, and, he, and Jesus said to them, get up and follow me. Ah, man, they weren't perfect by any stretch, right? Like they stumbled all along the way. And a couple of times he's like, where is your faith? But having met the risen Savior, they left everything and they committed themselves to a life of going about and preaching this gospel and living for his glory, no matter what the cost. And that was seen as it was expressed beyond them to those who came after them. See, the story of James, in fact, is pretty interesting because James thought his brother Jesus was crazy. But after meeting the risen Lord and seeing and hearing the witness of the apostles, he couldn't help but step in and become a part of this work. You see, the first fruits that God presented in that first generation became the first fruits of the next generation. And the first fruits of that generation became the next first fruits. So that every generation, God is putting first fruits forward. 
so that here we are 2,000 years later remembering that God is present, that God provides, that God protects, that God redeems, that God is God. And we are not. This is the mission he's given his church. To be a people whose lives of worship, whose lives of holy living, whose lives of pursuit of him, living in obedience to him, leads others to worship. And I know, I know, getting up here every week and calling people to this, I know, I, I see, I feel, I hear the pushback. Brothers and sisters, this is gospel news. This is good news news. You have been made alive and you have been made able to live. So do it. You see, these, these gospel responsibilities, this new gospel mission, this it, it, it purpose for our lives, it, it, it is gospel. It's inextricably woven together in the tapestry of what God is doing in this world. James is not presenting these things as options for us, do this or do that, but encouraging us, expecting us, calling us to recognize our new life and put it into practice. This is his good news. This is our good news that we actually get to be a part of this work. And because of the gospel, we have new life. Because of the gospel, we have a new way to live. Because of the gospel, our new life will never end. We're going to close on a more familiar bit more familiar gospel ter- territory. I don't know why I'm closing my Bible. I have some more verses I need to read to you. This new life, this new activity gives way to a new eternity. A, a new hope, if you will. It's not, a comp- it, it's not a wishful thought. It's not a, I hope it doesn't rain today so I can ride my motorcycle to church. It's not a, it's not a wish that, that's founded on nothing but what I desire. It is a confident expectation founded on the promises of God, the certainty that God is at work, the reality that you recognize the new identity, the new life you've been given, that you've been born again by the word of truth. And because you've been born again, you don't look at the future the same way you used to. You look with confident expectation of what is to come. And James bookends his letter as he calls us to these things in this way. James 1-2. We count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. For we know that when our faith is tested, it produces steadfastness. A true faith, a saving faith will result in steadfastness. It will result in endurance. It will result in strength. And when steadfastness, when that endurance, when that strength has had its full effect, you will be made, that you will be perfect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He started a work in you by giving you birth through the word of truth that ends in completion, perfection, lacking nothing. Is that not good news? The way there. It's going to be difficult. We're going to have to die to ourselves. We're going to have to live in obedience to his word. We're going to have to take up this new purpose and this new mission. But when we get to the finish line, we will be accepted and we will stand in the presence of our Savior. We will sit down at the feet of our Father. James 1.2. How do I know this is true? I'm sorry, James 1.12. How do I know this is true? 
because he tells us, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And this is rooted in the fact that you have been born again by the word of truth. And then he closes his message, he closes his letter after calling us to live this new life we've been given, to actually live it out, reminding of us, uh, us of the hope that we have by telling us in James 5.20 that our sins have been atoned for. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. We are saved from death. That we will have eternal life that even if we die, we shall live. And it will cover a multitude of sins. As, as far as our sin can go, his grace is greater. That there is no sin so great in your life that his grace can't cover it. Trust in him. Live for him. The end is Glorious, because his, sin, his, his grace has covered your sin. His work has taken care of that and has saved you from death. And, and, and what do we have to look forward to in that day? James 5, 7, 8, Jesus is coming, so be patient. Be patient. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The fruit of this life is going to be born out in the glorious presence of our creator who didn't stay distant, but who stepped into our existence and he gave us good gifts One of those good gifts was his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again victoriously. That if we would trust in him, our sins would be atoned, and that the day he shows up, all the fruit of the difficulty, all the waiting will pay off. You will not be disappointed. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is that you have been made alive The gospel is that you have been made able to live, so do it. The gospel is that this new life, it never ends, so we have nothing to fear. Let's pray.